Fight and Flight, the battle over NASA's lunar lander and new software for the agency's moon rocket. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Blue Origin, the aerospace company founded by Amazon's Jeff Bezos, is suing NASA over its selection of rival company SpaceX to design and develop the agency's next moon lander. It's the latest in Blue's protest efforts over the April decision by NASA to pick SpaceX to build a spacecraft to take humans to the lunar surface. We'll speak with Anthony Colangelo, a commercial space analyst and host of the podcast Main Engine Cutoff, about the protest and what's ahead for NASA's human landing system. We'll also chat about the burgeoning space tourism market and the latest delay of Boeing's Starliner spacecraft. Then, as the fight over NASA's lunar lander rolls on, software that will launch the agency's next moon rocket is getting installed. We'll talk with NASA's Anton Kirawas about the software that will fly SLS to the moon and back. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. NASA selected SpaceX to develop its Starship spacecraft to bring the first astronauts to the surface of the moon under NASA's Artemis program. That didn't sit well with Blue Origin, which led a team of contractors designing a lander of its own. It's one of the big headlines from the commercial space beat this week. Here to talk more about the protest and other news stories from the private space industry is Anthony Colangelo. He's a commercial space analyst and hosts the podcast Main Engine Cutoff. Anthony, welcome back. Happy to be back with some juicy topics. Yeah, uh, speaking of juicy topics, um, Blue Origin has filed a lawsuit uh, in the human landing system selection process. Uh, bring us up to speed. What's happening? Oh, this is a long story. Uh, so we'll roll it back a couple of months. Um, SpaceX was selected as the sole winner of the Artemis Lander Award. Uh, Blue Origin leading their team and Dynetics, the other offerer, they protested those awards Um, which when you protest an award, that goes to the Government Accountability Office. Uh, They protested on several different grounds about uh, the acquisitions process. And what that is doing is saying NASA didn't follow the rules that they laid out when they made this selection. So that is is the only thing that they can protest, is that did NASA follow their own rules or not? Uh, Two weeks ago, the GAO said that, yes, in fact, NASA did follow their own rules. This was a legitimate award. They had some stipulations about some things they would like to have seen different or that they needed to see different in the actual contract with SpaceX, uh, but they denied those protests. So that sent Blue Origin back to the drawing board, and in the intervening time, they've drawn several infographics explaining why Starship is a terrible choice and how many times you have to refuel the thing. Every single time that they do an infographic, I don't really understand the, the press release strategy here, it makes Starship sound cooler to myself and a lot of my non-space friends read those infographics and they're like, okay, so it's a huge rocket, it's bigger than Saturn V, it refuels a bunch and it flies all to the moon? This sounds amazing. Like, why are we mad about this? Um, so Blue Origin's been doing the, the public relations game for a couple of weeks and then just this morning they are suing NASA over the actual, actual uh, acquisition and contracting round of all this. There's not a lot of details because that's all sealed as part of their suit. Um, but there's just this full court press right now to try to overturn this award. Um, and it's very bizarre. Um, I guess the other thing we should cover is this open letter that Jeff Bezos wrote to NASA Administrator Bill Nelson a couple of weeks ago, saying essentially that Blue Origin would cover $2 billion of funding uh, for the first two or three fiscal years if they are awarded another contract so that they could build a lander for the Artemis program as well. 
That's parallel to NASA saying, well, we have a follow-up thing called the, and I always screw up this acronym, I think it's the Lunar Exploration Transportation Services contract, the LETS contract, um, which NASA right now is running by saying, if you've got a lander out there that you want to send people to the moon with, we would love to buy rides from you. Um, here's some small money for like design studies and some work to get it moving, but um, in the future, we'd love to buy a ride on your thing. So that's kind of the various streams of uh, hot drama, I guess, that we're tracking with this stuff. So to to just recap, we had the award was 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 given to, or the contract was awarded to SpaceX. You had Jeff Bezos come out and say, "Well, if you pick me, I'll give you two billion dollars." We also had happening in parallel a, a government accountability office uh, protest uh, that came back saying NASA didn't do anything wrong. Uh, and now we've got Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin suing uh, to see if they can get selected again. And in between all of that is a PR campaign to try to take SpaceX out. What what could possibly be the outcome for Blue Origin after this? What could happen? I, other than reputational damage, I really don't know what they're after here. It is a complete mystery what their actual tactic is. They clearly want to have part in the human landing system um, contract. They want to have that prestige that comes with it, saying that we are NASA's ride back to the moon. But it is bizarre to compare with a company that is looking at internally funding so much of its own work. You know, And that's part of the um, cognitive dissonance, I think, here, is that Jeff Bezos is writing in a letter, I'm willing to spend $2 billion out of my pocket to make a moon lander, while at the same time you know, kicking and screaming, getting dragged away from this contract for a moon lander. It's like, okay, well, you said you had all this money that you want to put towards the thing. Why don't you go make a moon lander, uh, start making some hardware and putting some stuff into flight? And and that's the, the real thing that's totally confusing me, to be quite honest. I know you brought me on for, like, insightful things, but I am completely confounded by what their policy is here. And And I've got to think that, you know, suing the federal government like this, that's a bold move because the federal government is potentially a future customer of yours, right? I mean, does this have any long-term implications for Blue Origin? I don't think so. And, I, and that's something that a lot of people have been talking about. But um, very different scenario. But there was a day, eight, nine years ago, when SpaceX decided to sue uh, the Department of Defense over the launch contracts that were being awarded at the time. Um, at the time, and, and even before that, they were suing. They were pretty litigious in their early years as well when they were working on Falcon 1 and Falcon 9. They were doing a lot more visibly, and they were flying a lot of hardware, and they were clearly investing in a lot of their own capabilities. So when it came to that suit, I think they had more standing or at least more momentum uh, behind what they were getting at. They weren't necessarily um, you know, up to par with their competitors at the time, which was Boeing and Lockheed Martin, uh, but they they definitely had a lot more momentum in this particular uh, vein. And it's uh, so I wouldn't say it burns all the bridges uh, because at the end of the day, NASA and the rest of the federal government, what they really want is reliable services at a, at a good price. If you're able to do that, they're OK with, you know, a lot of dirty laundry that comes along with that. I mean, on the other side, the launch contracts I was just mentioning, uh, those were primarily flown by Boeing and Lockheed Martin, who had to make a joint venture United Launch Alliance because of corporate espionage. They, they literally were spying on each other, stealing paperwork about each other's vehicles. And the government liked their services so much, they said, why don't you two go ahead and make a joint venture and we will keep buying 
some launches from you. So if they're willing to overlook that, I think they're willing to overlook a lawsuit here or there. Elon Musk smoking weed on the Joe Rogan show. There's there's a lot that they can get over if you're able to give them a good service at a good price. Anthony, are you saying that there could be a joint venture between SpaceX and Blue Origin now? <laughs> I think that one's out of the cards. <laughs> but other than that, I think everything else is uh, open for business. Let, I mean, let's take it a step back even further. When when NASA made this selection, they only selected one company, SpaceX. What was the reason for that? So NASA's reasoning is that they were not given enough funding uh, from Congress for over the, the long term of this uh, this contract. It was going to be, you know, five years that they're looking at here. Um, they, they only have enough funding to fully fund one competitor. And what we all were expecting them to do was say, well, that's okay. We'll move the deadline from 2024 to 2028. We'll stretch the small amount of money over a longer period of time. That way we can pick to move slower. Uh, but NASA went the aggressive route uh, under the leadership of Kathy Leaders, and they said we would like one lander that we can fully fund. SpaceX was putting uh, almost as much money, actually more than the amount of money that NASA would be putting in, into this contract. So they felt they had a good partner who clearly has a long line of success here. Um, so banking on their former successes and current successes, I should say, they're flying astronauts to the International Space Station, you know, as we speak. Um, banking on that, plus their own investment in Starship, NASA felt that they could lock in one competitor for the long haul and not have to kind of drag out a program like they tend to do uh, over, you know, my lifetime, really. Let's talk a little bit about successes for Blue Origin. They had um, the first crewed, a uh, new Shepard flight recently, um, right on the heels of Richard Branson's crewed uh, Virgin Galactic um, uh, test flight. Tell me a little bit about what we know about this commercial tourism space industry as it's, you know, just starting to open up. Yeah, this is, you know, they've done a lot of test flights before. Blue Origin's never flown people. Virgin Galactic always has people on board. So they each have done a lot of test flights, but these were kind of seen as the, you know, the hallmark moments where their founders step on their own spaceship and go to space. Um, there's that whole debate that we will sidestep. I think they both went to space. That's uh, something that you can take up with somebody else. Um, but it was a big moment to see what it would look like for people to fly on these vehicles. You're seeing the full end-to-end testing of all the facilities at these different launch complexes, uh, the actual entire flight profile. And you know it attracted a lot of attention because of those founders. What attention it attracts when it's just a couple of randos that are going up on the next flight, I guess we'll find out. Um, but they were both using this as a, as a way to say, we are back, we're flying, we're selling tickets again. Uh, in the case of Virgin Galactic, they had sold tickets previously. Blue Origin just started selling tickets now. Uh, but they were using this as a big marketing push. So the thing that I'm I'm really focused on here is how quickly can these companies get flying their next flights and what kind of rate are they going to see from there? It seems like both of them... Uh, well, Blue Origin might pick it up a little quicker. Virgin Galactic is going to have a flight and then about a year of downtime while they do maintenance on the vehicles. So they're still a year or more out from getting into regular service. Blue Origin could be flying every two or three months sometime this year. Um, but that regular cadence of flights and you know how frequently people are going to space, that's really the thing that I think is key to watch for these two companies in the next you know year or two. 
Mm-hmm. It's going to take a while before those randos get to fly, huh? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I'm going to be definitely watching the randos. I think me and you can be on the rando beat, so we'll, we'll keep an eye out. <laughs> or maybe we'll actually get in the capsule, right? We How might much, be the uh, randos. <laughs> do you have some money lying around? <laughs> what do we? I mean, what do we know about the price at, at this point? Do we know anything as to what the ticket prices are going to be? A little bit. Um, Virgin Galactic previously, you know, years ago, were selling tickets about two hundred fifty thousand dollars a piece. They have since uh, upped that to four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Um, Blue Origin, on the other hand, is saying, well, what do you think a trip to space is worth? And that's about what you'll pay for a trip to space, that turns out. Uh, So they ran an auction for the first seat, um, but they also said that they signed up a bunch of people during that auction. So whoever didn't pay $28 million, like uh, the first paying customer, if they paid $26 million, they're probably going up next on a $26 million space flight. So Blue Origin is letting that initial demand, um, you know, pay what you will pricing, I think it's kind of a great strategy you don't have to cap yourself if, if someone wants to give you that much money to fly to space let them give you that much money and then once you kind of see that initial wave of demand ebb and flow then establish a price that seems comfortable given the market that you need to hit so it's definitely a different tactic here for virgin galactic to name a price and blue origin to say pay what you will until we figure it out um there seems to be sufficient demand for both of those we've already seen the italian air force buy a flight on virgin galactic that's coming up sometime this fall um, NASA has an office called Suborbital Crew, where they might fly astronauts on both of these vehicles to do experiments in flight or just training for an upcoming space flight. So I want to see what kind of market that is as well. I think we mostly think about like Lady Gaga buying flights, um, but there's a lot of governments out there that would like to fly their own astronauts or own test pilots or own you know research institutions that they want to fund missions to go do actual experiments. There's a lot more work to be done on these uh, vehicles than I think we might imagine when it's, you know, Richard Branson having a rock concert, taking his pants off or whatever he might do because he's (laughs) Richard Branson, you know? Yeah, Richard Branson's not doing uh, too much... uh... Uh, experiments while he's up there, right? He's no, <laughs> he's doing it there no, he was doing a speech and you know floating around a little bit. It was great. <laughs> well, well, finally, Anthony, um, something that hasn't left the ground uh, is Boeing's redo of the Starliner mission, the orbital flight test. To uh, what do we know about this latest delay, and what is the outlook uh, for OFT two? It's not great. Uh, so this, of course, was a redo of a flight that was in December 2019. If my pre-pandemic timeline is correct. That is correct. Um, And Boeing had decided that they would pay out of their own pocket to refly that because it went so poorly with a handful of different issues. They were going to fly a mission to redo it out of their own pocket, and uh, it was on the launch pad. It was stacked on top of its Atlas V. They found some issues with valves in the spacecraft uh, that wouldn't open. They eventually rolled it back into the hangar, got nine of the 13 valves to open. There were still four stuck, and they never quite figured out why these valves started having issues. So they actually have to roll this back to the factory, take it off of the rocket entirely, um, and figure everything out in the factory where they built it. So um, unfortunately for them, the launch manifest coming up for both the rocket itself that they're flying on and the space station is pretty busy. So United Launch Alliance uh, is going to be launching Lucy, which is a, an uh, asteroid mission, uh, and that has a very specific launch window. So that's going to be flying next. They have a couple of more missions this fall to fly. The International Space Station is a busy place these days. There's a cargo mission going up that needs to use the port that Starliner was supposed to use. There's another crew flight coming in a couple of months. So I've heard varying months in 2022, sometime late winter, early spring is the next time that Starliner will have a a slot to actually go up to the ISS uh, and actually dock. So it is a real bummer with how many issues they've had on this thing. 
the fact that they're going to be two years plus, you know, past that initial test flight is, uh, you know, talk about reputational harm when we talk about Blue Origin. Boeing has obviously had a trying couple of years, but on the Starliner side, it, it's a bummer when they thought it finally got to the launch pad, but it's not to be yet. Anthony Colangelo hosts the Main Engine Cutoff podcast. You can get it wherever you get this podcast or more information on his website, MainEngineCutoff.com. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks as always, Brendan. Still to come, NASA's next moon rocket gets its flight software. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Teams at NASA's Kennedy Space Center are assembling NASA's next moon rocket, SLS. Part of that assembly includes installing critical flight software that helps steer the vehicle as it takes off from KSC on a mission to the moon and back. To talk more about that software installation and what's ahead for SLS, we're joined by Anton Kirawas, a launch project engineer at NASA's Kennedy Space Center, Anton, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much. So tell me a bit about this software that's being installed on the SLS. Uh, what does it do? Sure. So we, this week, uh, spent some time within our uh, launch control center in the firing room loading up what we call the flight computer application software. So this is a series of software that was developed by the Marshall Space Flight Center uh, specifically for the SLS Artemis One flight. And uh, it has now been uh, certified and approved for use for the Artemis One flight. And so we went ahead and loaded it onto the three flight computers that the SLS vehicle has. And what is this software responsible for? So the software that we have on board the rocket is responsible for controlling everything within the rocket. It takes into consideration all of the hundreds and thousands of sensors that the vehicle has within the engines uh, and along all the rest of the vehicle. And it's responsible for actually flying the mission into low Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it's it's been installed on flight computers on the SLS. You said there were three of them. Uh, first of all, can you tell me where these computers are, and are there three computers that work in tandem together, or are there three computers in case there might be an issue with one of them? So that's exactly right. There's, uh, you know, NASA is uh, famous for our redundancy, and so we run in what we call a triplex configuration, and that means we've actually got three flight computers running the exact same software at exactly the same time, and they are actually voting on what actions the, the vehicle needs to take. And so we load that same software onto all three of them. We confirm that the image is loaded successfully, and then uh, we're about to get into a pretty large test campaign uh, over the next couple of weeks here, where we test out everything on the vehicle, make sure that all the interfaces as we continue stacking and assembling the vehicle are done correctly and that everything's talking properly before we go into our, our big tests, which are our countdown sequencing test and our wet dress rehearsal test. Mm -hmm. And where are these computers located physically on the rocket? So they are actually, um, we've got different computers that we load, and there's a lot of different avionics boxes that we load. These ones are loaded in the inner tank section. Gotcha. If you imagine the vehicle, you've got uh, kind of a very long tank, and then you've got a shorter tank on top. In between is that section we call the inner tank. Gotcha. And you said this this gets gets, gets the vehicle all the way up into orbit, right? And then I would assume that's when the there's similar software on the Orion capsule, right? 
That's exactly right. We actually have three sets of avionics on this vehicle. The flight computers that we're referring to right now on the SLS core stage are responsible for the control of both the core stage itself and the RS-25 engines that we have on there, as well as the two boosters that are attached. We have a separate set of flight computers that are responsible for controlling our interim cryopropulsion stage. That's our second stage of the rocket. And then finally, we've got a set of computers on board the Orion capsule as well. Gotcha. And Anton, let's let's take it even a step further back. Um, this software, I mean, was this developed specifically for this spacecraft or is this kind of an off-the-shelf solution NASA has? What went into developing this software? So this software has been in development for uh, a very long time uh, within the SLS program. And it this specific version of the software is for Artemis 1. There's a lot of different parameters that you have to get right. You have to know exactly when the mission is going to take place. You have to know what your windows look like. And we have done thousands and thousands of tests. Uh, both the Marshall Space Flight Center has tested from a mission perspective, making sure they've gone through all the different scenarios that they need to account for. Um, as well as doing the ground launch sequencing tests that we do as well. We actually have folks here from Kennedy Space Center that travel out to various test labs, including the uh, systems integration lab for the SLS rocket, and we test our ground software and make sure that it's going to work with the flight software. We actually tested this flight load that we just did here uh, several weeks back to make sure that that was going to work properly. Mm-hmm. And. I mean, can you quantify just how complex this is, how many lines of code, or, or how big is this software? I mean, just, just how complicated is this? You know, I'm not exactly sure how many lines of code uh, are in this flight software itself. I'd probably have to defer to some of our Marshall engineers who are responsible for uh, actually developing that software, and they'd be uh, much better at telling you that. What I can tell you is that um, the testing that we've done is extensive. There are hundreds and hundreds of scenarios, uh, different failure modes that we test for to make sure that the rocket can uh, accommodate and still handle that. Or more importantly, we test and make sure that if any of those situations happen on the ground prior to flight, that we're able to go ahead and stop that launch and make sure that the rocket's ready to go before we actually get to lift off. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that testing. Um, how 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 do you talk to the software while the rocket is on the pad? How do you how do you link up to it and, and run these tests? Sure, that's a great question. So we've got several umbilicals that we have that connect the uh, the ground systems to the flight systems. And I always say that essentially the, the purpose of those umbilicals is to keep the vehicle happy. Uh, in some <laughs> cases, that means providing commodities such as uh, nitrogen to keep things purged. That can include the fuels itself, the liquid hydrogen, the liquid oxygen. Uh, in this case, for the computers, that includes data and communication. So we've got both uh, power that we provide to the vehicle to make sure that everything's powered, the batteries are charged, and everything's ready for flight. And we also have a lot of data that is coming down these network links that provide us with all the telemetry coming off the vehicle and allow us on the ground directly from our firing room to send commands up to the vehicle to sequence all of that processing and all of that launch leading up to T0. Gotcha. And and so there's testing is underway now, right, with Marshall Space Flight Center, but you said there's also going to be some testing at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, can you kind of go into a little bit of detail as to what's going to happen and, and what mission managers like yourself are going to be keeping a a keen eye on during this testing phase. Sure. So 
Marshall is continuing to test that flight software. Again, they are going through all of those uh, certifications as we work our way towards that uh, final certification of the vehicle for flight. Uh, down here at Kennedy Space Center, we are testing the vehicle itself. So after each stage of assembly, we go ahead and we test every one of those interfaces. So we're going through a big campaign that we call IVT. That's the interface verification test. And that is part of our larger ITCO test, which is the integrated test and checkout campaign. So again, this is the first flight of a brand new, a brand new vehicle. We wanna make sure that everything on the vehicle is as perfect as it can be before we're ready to fly. And so we go through sequentially. We have uh, created in our partnerships with uh, Marshall Space Flight Center, along with the Johnson Space Center, uh, thousands of requirements that we've done and, and documented that say, what does the vehicle need to look like so that we are confident in its ability to fly? And now the engineers here at Kennedy Space Center are executing each one of those. We built a very large test campaign that's gonna go through each one of those sequentially, making sure that we meet those requirements. And where we don't, we wanna make sure we understand how, we wanna get it back into configuration, test it again, and make sure that we are ready to fly. Anton, you mentioned this particular software was designed specifically for the Artemis One mission. Um, I'm wondering about future missions. Are, is that software being developed in parallel to this mission, or are you going to be using what you've learned from the Artemis 1 software and the Artemis 1 mission to build the next version of this for the next mission? So absolutely, this provides our baseline. Uh, and that's true for both the flight software that we just loaded on, and it's true for the ground software that we've developed here at Kennedy as well. It's kind of our baseline from Artemis 1. We'll adapt it as the requirements change. As you uh, may already know, we are adding a lot of capabilities to the Orion capsule to support the, uh, the first crewed mission for Artemis 2. All of those capabilities are gonna need to be tested, so we're gonna have to adapt our ground software. The mission profile for Artemis 2 is slightly different uh, but there's a surprising amount that we can do with data loads. So one of the things we did during this flight software load that we just did this week is it was actually done in two phases. One is to load the flight software itself. And I don't want to say that it's generic, but it is it is a very versatile set of software. The second thing we did is we loaded what we call our uh, data loads. And those data loads actually provide a lot of the parameters that you need that are mission specific. And so by changing those parameters for Artemis 2, we're going to be able to reuse a lot of that software that we developed for Artemis 1. Mm -hmm. And assuming all goes well with the testing at, at Marshall and, and the testing at the Kennedy Space Center between you know, the software and, and uh, the way that you communicate with it, what, what's the next major milestone um, that you're looking towards for SLS? So once we complete all of the interface verification testing, uh, we are marching our way towards the countdown sequencing test. This is a kind of a countdown test that we do inside the VAB itself. This is the first time we get to sequence all of the ground software that we've developed, including, uh, including our ground launch sequencer. Uh, and that's going to work in tandem with that flight software that we've loaded on there. Now, there's a whole lot of systems you can't test in the VAB. You don't have all the same commodities. You don't have all the same pad support structures that you would. But that's going to let us kind of ring out all of that to make sure that while we've been working in parallel and we've been testing in labs, does it work on the real hardware? And that's where the rubber will really hit the road. From there, we will move on to our wet dress rehearsal. And that's a very big test for us here at Kennedy Space Center. That's where we actually roll out on the mobile launcher. We bring it to the pad. We're actually gonna load the tanks full of commodities. Uh, that includes the liquid hydrogen and the liquid oxygen. And we're gonna count down 
almost all the way to T0. Uh, the purpose of that test is again to just make sure that now that we've actually done everything, we've included all those commodities, included all those other systems, that everything works the way it's supposed to. And that'll be the last final test we do before our actual launch countdown and launch. Lots of exciting stuff happening at the Kennedy Space Center. We've been speaking with Anton Kirawas. He's a launch project engineer at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. Anton, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet? It's a production of WMFE. It's America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from you, our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.